are now in the book of Genesis and chapter 41. So if you want to turn to the book of Genesis, uh, starting with chapter 41, if you're saying, oh, I didn't bring my Bible, that's okay. There should be one right there in front of you. If you say, oh, well, I really don't have a Bible at all, that's fine. Take that one home with you. We'd love for each person to have, um, well, don't hoard Bibles. <laughs> you know, the, if you have one, that's probably good enough, but uh, I know some of you might have several different kinds of translations. But... Um, uh, we like to make sure that each person has, has a Bible. I want to start by asking you a little bit about how your summer's going. How's your summer going? Good? Did you know that it's almost over? <laughs> I know you don't want to think about that, do you? You don't want to take your mind there quite yet, but you know it's going to be back to school shopping pretty soon and you know all of those different fun, fun things. So enjoy it, enjoy it. Uh, while it lasts. Some summers are filled with a lot of weddings. You know, like, it seems to maybe happen in, in, in bursts. Um, some summers are filled with all these kinds of weddings, trying to fit them all in. Sometimes you don't have any weddings. I haven't had a lot of weddings, you know, since I started here. And by the way, uh, on Tuesday was my official start date a year ago here. So it's my one-year anniversary with all of you. Really excited. But... Pastor Jim likes to do all the weddings around here. I haven't done a wedding, you know. Have I done a wedding? No, I haven't done a wedding. And, um, you know, I've done a lot of of weddings, but we've been talking about whether um, you have the very unique experience of working with Pastor Jim, which there's none other like it, or Pastor Steve or I, you know, there might be differences in in how the premarital process goes if you want to get married in this church. And just by a show of hands, how many of you have been married, were married in this, in this sanctuary, in this church? Yeah, a few of you have been married here, been married here. So you probably went through uh, the, the premarital process and something that's uh, really important in, in, in the life of our church as, as we give couples the best start possible as they enter into their marriage, which includes the, uh, the premarital counseling process and sometimes that's a little intimidating for, for some folks but you know I really try to make it fun and uh, over the years of being a pastor I've uh, really warmed to this program that's called Prepare Enrich. Prepare Enrich and it involves an online assessment and the cool thing for me is because I'm not a, a clinical counselor or, or psychologist there is this online assessment that I have couples take that have, has been developed by these people that are way smarter than I am. And I have such a, you know, sort of limited time sometimes with, with couples uh, that, um, you know, I, I really want to pinpoint some of the, t- the conversations, the talking points, so that I can do my best in helping a couple get ready uh, for, for their marriage. And so the cool thing about this is it really brings to light, in this assessment, it really brings to light Um, Both the individuals take the online assessment separately and you really get some of the talking points, the conversation points that that I would want to bring up as I'm preparing a couple to to get married. And what I love about this particular assessment is that they have a particular thing that they call idealistic distortion. Idealistic distortion. In other words, are you looking at your wedding day through rose-colored lenses? In other words, are you hiding things away? Are you distracting yourself? Are you purposefully ignoring something in the hype and the excitement 
and uh, the momentum of your particular wedding day and planning the, the actual day or your marriage in, in general. And so when people come, this might be a little bit of a warning to you, when people come and they give me like all the answers that they think I want to hear, red flag. <laughs> When every answer is perfect, and this kind of happens sometimes, and Pastor Steve knows this about this as well, when people find out that you're a pastor, sometimes the conversation changes a little bit. I learned this a little bit from my dad. He was a pastor, and he come, came home one time from a golf outing. He's like, you know, I met this new guy, and once he found out I was a pastor, well, I think he let me win. <laughs> you know, we... we we have an important role as pastors and, and stuff like that, but we don't have this sort of extra lifeline to God where, you know, if, we, if you don't let us win in golf, we're going to put in a bad word. And it doesn't work that way, okay? But idealistic distortion um, is, is really important because people get so excited about the wedding day. In fact, I have an example of someone, a picture of someone who had huge amounts of idealistic distortion when, when he was getting married. Take a look at this picture. This is at the moment when this guy's bride was walking down the aisle. He had a tremendous amount of idealistic distortion about how things would, would be going. Now, I have, I have to say, I think I have a really great marriage. It's something that I'm very uh, proud of. I, I do a great job with it, you know. And no, but, but there are so many things that I didn't know in, in, in that moment. It was such a, a beautiful moment. And I, Amanda and I have been able to navigate things and have, we need to talk about difficult things and, and all of that. But I didn't, really, I didn't really know what I was doing at this point in time. Idealistic distortion. You know, this thing exists in all different spheres and encounters of life, doesn't it? And this is what our friend Joseph is encountering a little bit when we arrive in chapter 41 of Genesis. If you've been following along throughout this series, we've been going through the story of Joseph that really begins in Genesis 37. And Joseph was... Um, uh, one of the youngest uh, siblings, he had many brothers, and uh, he was favored by his father, and he liked to tell them, uh, his brothers, about that. And they were filled with jealousy and malice, and they decided, they plotted against him to take his life, and they decided not to do that, but instead to sell him into slavery. And so they did that. He became a slave. He was sold into the house of a, an Egyptian officer, uh, the officer's wife really uh, was taken to him, made some advances. He ran away without his clothes and uh, was falsely accused of, of attempted rape. And so he ended up in prison. It was the lowest of the low point that you can imagine for, for anybody going through a situation like that. And all along we've been talking about God's faithfulness and what God's doing in the midst of when it all just goes wrong. And there's nothing to do, do about it. It just, it just all just goes wrong. And we question, right, if God is really there. And we see how, how God's sort of working in the midst of this story. And a couple of weeks ago, I talked to you about how Joseph is sitting there in prison and there's something that was about to, to change, that a shift was about to take place. And last week, Pastor Steve talked into that, 
shift, which was uh, it's no longer just all going wrong for him, that suddenly things are beginning to go right, but, all, but su- su- success has its own set of problems, doesn't it? That when things are going right, well, we have some issues with that and navigating that as human beings as well. And so he began to earn the favor of Pharaoh, the most important, the most uh, 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 the highest authority of the land. He earned his favor and honor through the interpretation of dreams. Everything that Joseph had told to Pharaoh about Pharaoh's dream had come to pass. And Joseph is riding high. He lands at the height of his success when we get here in chapter 41. He gets married. He has a couple sons. And his firstborn son, and I don't have time to kind of go through all of the symbolisms in that culture of that day of what children represented, especially um, a, a firstborn male child in that society in that day, what that meant symbolically for the future and how someone could look ahead in their role and what, what, what God, the, the, the amount of blessing that's happening in the present and leading into the future. But we get this. This is a really big deal. This is a huge turn of events in the life and the story of Joseph. And he's at the height of his success and it's a complete change from everything that he had done. Before he was experiencing all the, the manifestations of injustice. It was unfair to him. He was dealing with the effects of injustice on his life. But now he was beginning to feel and experience the effects of God's favor in his life. And this is what he says in chapter 41, verse 51. Chapter 41, verse 51. It says, Joseph named the firstborn Manasseh. And if you have a little footnote, it says Manasseh means making to forget. Making to forget. He named him Manasseh for, he said, God has made me, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. This is your quintessential how do you like me now kind of moment. He, has, he thinks to himself that his, his, his current success has now made him to forget not only the hardship that he faced, but the people that were responsible for the hardship. All of his father's house. It's in the rearview mirror. It's water under the bridge. I don't, have to for, I don't have to deal with it. I don't have to remember it. But, you know, he is kind of talking about it, so did he really, you know, forget uh, in, in that in that respect. In fact, what we'll learn from this story is that he didn't actually forget. (laughs) He thinks that his current success is going to erase and that he'd no longer have to deal with his past. But I can tell you in, you know, I haven't, I've been a pastor for over 10 years. And in my course, I've talked to hundreds, maybe even thousands of people. I've heard their stories. I've counseled them. I've sat down with them. I've listened to their, their, their feelings and their thoughts and their experiences. And I can look at my own life and, and look at the, some of the things that I've dealt with. 
the past never goes away. There's no way to hide our past. Now we can try to distract ourselves, which I think is what Joseph might be doing here. We can try to distract ourselves, place our minds somewhere else so that we don't have to deal with our past, but the past never goes away. And oftentimes, and almost always, I could think I could say is that it finds its way leaking out in one way or the other. The past will always, always catch up with us. And I experienced this amongst colleagues as I was living in Haiti. There were people who loved to go on the mission field thinking that they could leave the past, the problems that they had when they were in, uh, at home. The past never goes away. It's always there, and maybe we don't recognize it on the surface, but it has its way of, of living and breathing deep down inside of our spirits. And it affects us and drives us and manipulates us in all kinds of different ways. Joseph was trying to hide his past, but he was soon gonna know that the past was not going to stay hidden any longer. The 19th century uh, author and poet, Irish uh, author and poet, Oscar Wilde, he says in one of his, his most famous pieces, he says, no man is rich enough to buy back his past. No man is rich enough to buy back his past. This statement is surely for someone like Joseph, who had all the money, all the fame, all the popularity, all the power and responsibility, but he couldn't buy back his past. And it certainly wasn't gonna be going away. Everything that Joseph had told Pharaoh about his dream was coming true. They had seven years of abundance. And while everyone else was lapping it up, living it up in, in uh, luxury because everything was abundant, the Egyptians knew better because Joseph had told them that after the seven years of abundance, there would be seven years of fierce famine. And so instead of living the life of luxury, they stored away grain, lots and lots of grain. They stored it away for the famine that was about to come. And when the famine began to hit, people began to panic. There's no more grain. And so what they did is they went to the most powerful person in the land, which was Pharaoh. But Pharaoh was so busy binge watching on Netflix, he didn't want to deal with this sort of thing. So he said, well, go talk to Joseph. He's the one I put in charge of, of all of this thing. So think about with me the tremendous amount of responsibility and power and authority that Joseph has been given in this moment. Think about the shift of power that has, uh, that be, when Joseph began as a young man, you know, he, he was taken advantage of. There were, there were forces of power against him, and now he's the one that has the power. And so when his past catches up with him, he's in a different place now, right? See, in the past, there were forces and there were people more powerful than him that were doing things unjustly, in, in, in doing things to him. We know what that feels like. There were forces against him that were more powerful than him, but now he is the one with the authority and with the power, and the past is about to confront him. I wonder 
how he's going to deal with this now. Turn with me to chapter 42. Skip over to chapter 42 and look at verse six with me and follow along. 42, verse six. Now Joseph, um, pay attention to this note. It's important in the story. Now Joseph was governor over the land. Okay, talking about his status, his position. It was he who sold all the people of the land. He had the grain. He was responsible for divvying it out. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Think about this image. It was those same brothers that wanted to remind Joseph Joseph was having these dreams about his own greatness over his brothers and they became jealous and filled with malice and so they wanted to show him who was really in charge, who really had the power in this relationship. And so uh, through their actions, Joseph was, was humbled. Think about the, the power dynamic there in that relationship. But now look how much it is twisted and shifted. It's completely the opposite. Now it's the brothers that are bowing low, prostrating themselves before Joseph, and they don't know it's actually Joseph yet. But think about the the change in relationship, that the power that Joseph now has. It's amazing, isn't it? I wonder how he'd respond. Verse seven says, when Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke harshly to them. He said, where do you come from? He said, and they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And, and what ensues is this sort of playful cat and mouse game where Joseph accuses them of being spies and they said, no, we're not spies. And then he plants some treasure like a silver cup and some other things in their caravan and comes out and arrests them and says, see, you've been stealing from me, you're spies, and goes through this whole game with them just to remind them of, well, look, look who's really in charge now. And you get the sense that it's filled with a little bit of retribution. It's filled with a little bit of revenge. That now that Joseph is in the position of authority and power to do something about the injustice of his past, he is going to use that power and use that authority to fight against the past that has hurt him and the people responsible for hurting him. So first, he's trying to hide from his past, and now he's trying to fight his past. But here's what Joseph is going to learn, and something that I've learned as well, that when the past hurts us, when it hurts, neither hiding it or fighting it is gonna work. When the past confronts us, when we're dealing and digging deep into the wounds that we have been carrying for so long, we can try to hide it, but it's not gonna work. And we can try to fight it, but that's not gonna work either. And in, in, the, in the counseling um, relationship and situation involves both of these things where a counselor will help someone to dig underneath the surface to kind of figure out what's you know, beyond what's sort of trying to hide the, the, the deep woundedness that's, that's happening there. And it also involves helping people come to a place that they just can't, they can't fix it themselves, that they need help, that they need intervention, that they need to come to a place where 
I, I need to surrender and accept help. And we hear that language all the time in our Celebrate Recovery ministry. I'm helpless here. I need, I need God here if I'm going to be healed from this, this hurt habit or, or hang up. So neither hiding it nor fighting it is going to work in facing our past because the past has power. It drives and, and manipulates and directs us in so many ways that we don't even recognize. Just um, over the last couple of weeks, well, more than that really, we've been having a lot of discussions, uh, Pastor Steve and, and Gus and Seth Wanger and I, we've been having discussions about the worship service and you know, are we doing our best job to help all of you connect with God in the course of a worship service? And in, so we've had some healthy debate back and forth. Should we have this? Should we not have this? This, this, that, and the other thing. And in the course of that disagreement, I had to stop myself and say, you know what? I have to realize I'm kind of coming from my own background here. <laughs> like this is my experience and I kind of had a bad experience and so I'm kind of railing against that in this comp- present day conversation. You guys should know that, about that. And Seth, um, he's like, you know what? Me too. <laughs> We're both pastor's kids. <clears throat> but that's how the past, right? It, the past influences us, deeply influences us. It shapes the way we look at the world. It shapes the way we interact with people. It shapes the way and drives the way we respond to certain things. How we avoid certain things and how we're attracted to certain things. My guess is that maybe even your past has something to do with you being in this particular church on this particular morning. The past is a powerful presence. It's power, and it's power for good sometimes. We have fond memories many times when we, around the Christmas season holiday, that warm, fuzzy feeling. We're filled with nostalgia, a sense of tradition. Well, we have to do this every single year. Well, why? Because that's what I did when I was a kid. <laughs> but it's nice. It's, it's, it's comfortable. It's familiar. It's, it's a good, fuzzy feeling. But it's also volatile because the past can also hurt us deeply. It can create wounds that we carry with us our entire life long. And God is particularly concerned about this power. God is particularly concerned about this power that isn't necessarily him. God is concerned about this power that drives and influences and shapes us in so many ways that isn't necessarily him that could do a great deal of harm, that has the potential to do a great deal of harm to us. God is concerned because God is the only, the only ultimate power that wants our ultimate good. God is the only ultimate power that wants our ultimate good, and we can't say the same thing for the power of the past. We can't say the same thing about our past. Despite having good, fuzzy, warm feelings when we reflect back and fill with gratitude, so grateful about these experiences. But it doesn't always work that way. God is the only ultimate power that wants our ultimate good. And that's why God is concerned. And this is the heart work that, that Paul, or Paul, this is the heart work that God is doing in Joseph. Follow with me now. Uh, skip ahead to chapter 43 
And in the cat and mouse game that Joseph is playing with his brothers, he requests that his younger son, Benjamin, comes with them the next time that they, that they come back. And so, uh, the story goes like this, starting uh, with uh, chapter 43, verse 29. It says, Then he looked up and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God, be gracious to you, my son. Watch this. And with that, Joseph hurried out because he was overcome with affection for his brother and he was about to weep. So he went into a private room and wept there. Then he washed his face and came out and controlling himself again, controlling himself, he said, serve the meal. You ever seen people apologize for their ugly cry? (laughs) There's... There's this perception that we deal with that if we cry, we're exuding some kind of weakness, that we're giving up some kind of power, that we're being vulnerable and we're portraying ourselves as weak. But really, that weakness is what's really going on in in Joseph. Despite all of his social and his political power, despite all of the accolades and the authority and the honor that's given to him on a daily basis as a governor in Egypt, Despite all of that, he becomes undone. He can't control his own emotions. The power of the past is actually controlling him. And it's coming up to the surface. And he doesn't know what to do. He's filled with shame, so he hides himself and goes and has a nice cry and cleans himself up and and comes back out. And this is the beginning steps. This isn't the end, but this is the beginning steps of what will eventually become, the Pastor Steve will uh, talk us through next week, is the, the final reconciliation, and Joseph will unveil himself finally to his brothers. But you can see how he is being deeply affected. God is working on Joseph's heart for the purposes of forgiveness. God is working on Joseph's heart for the purposes of forgiveness. Forgive is a word that we find littered throughout the entire Bible. What's interesting is that in the Hebrew, that was the original language of the Old Testament, in the Hebrew, the word forgive gives us this idea of picking something up that, other, that before we could not. It was a weight, it was a burden that we could not lift. And so now, through forgiveness, we gain power over that thing and can lift it up and carry it. In the Greek, which is the New Testament original it gives us the idea of a sending away, almost like a king would, shoo, send away. And both gives us, give us a, a, a glimpse of the, of the change of power that happens in that moment. Whereas our past has power over us and suddenly through forgiveness, that thing of our past, that relationship, that person no longer affects us in the way that it did, no longer has that power over us. When God gets in the mix to teach us about forgiveness. God wants us and is calling us to be a people of forgiveness. Not so that we can hold hands again and sing kumbaya. Not because what God ultimately wants is for everyone to play nice. God wants that. 
But God calls us to forgiveness because it is a weight, it is a power over us. Our past is a weight and a power over us that's not of him. And and the ability to forgive releases that power to God and lets God take care of it. If you jump ahead with me real quick, we'll go through this quickly. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus talks about forgiveness. Jesus talks about forgiveness. Matthew chapter 18, starting with verse 21. Matthew chapter 18, verse, starting with verse 21. We have a, a, Jesus talks about forgiveness, and it, it says this. Then Peter came, Peter's his, uh, one of his closest disciples. Peter came and said to him, Lord, if another member of the church sins against me, how often should I forgive? One and done? What's the boundary here? I mean, I can't just keep being a doormat, right? I can't just keep forgiving because in Peter's mind, he's like, how much, how much should I give away my power? How much should I give away power through forgiveness? And we deal with that perception all the time. We think that if we forgive someone, we're giving that person a pass. And that if we're going to seek revenge and retribution, that we're, um, that we're uh, giving them what's coming to them. That we're reminding them of, or we're sort of um, evening the field evening the the power balance. And we think that if we forgive, we're giving away power. And that's what's behind the question here with Peter, how many times do I need to forgive? I mean, come on. I don't want to be taken advantage of here, right? And so he gives Jesus um, wiggle room. He gives him a a complete number, seven. Lots of layered meaning within that number seven. Gives us a sign of completeness. How about seven times? Forgive. And then Jesus says in verse 22, Jesus said to him, not seven times I tell you, 77 times. Or your footnote in your Bible might say seven times or 70 times seven. And Jesus is playing off of all the layered meaning here. He's not saying 77 or anything like that. He's saying infinity. Infinity. It's like, um, you play that game when you're a kid, like, I love you this much, I love you times infinity, I love you times infinity times infinity, well, but Jesus is giving the point, it just goes on, you just keep doing it, and why do you keep doing it? Why would you give away that kind of power? Why would you uh, give a, a perpetrator, someone that has harmed us, someone who has caused injustice in this world and to us personally, why would we give that to them? That's the wrong question. Because to to forgive is not to give them the power. It is to release that power that's been over over us the entire time. To release that power to God and let God do God's thing as he is the infinite, almighty God that can just sort of take care of these sorts of things, ultimately. Because he is the only ultimate power that wants our ultimate good. Jesus drives this home. Actually, earlier in the book of Matthew. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus teaches the disciples 
how to pray, starting in verse 14. He teaches them how to pray, and in the midst of that prayer, something we call the Lord's Prayer, you might have heard that. In verse 12, the part of that says, and forgive us our debts, and we also have forgiven our debtors. And then he gives a footnote, he explains it, and then in verse 14, and here's something I want you to wrestle with. Verse 14, Matthew 6, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, neither your Father, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And let's be honest, we struggle with those kinds of contingencies, do we not? But what Jesus is driving home here is that if you are going to be a forgiven people, then you have to be a forgiving people. You cannot enter into the forgiveness of Jesus Christ and not share that, and not be willing to share that same or extend that same forgiveness to others. You cannot hoard, you cannot take in the same forgiveness of Jesus Christ and not offer that same forgiveness to others. The two are intertwined in relationship. If you're gonna be a people of forgiveness, you're gonna receive the forgiveness of Christ and you're gonna extend the forgiveness of Christ. Jesus is saying this is a big, big deal and not just so that you can be nicer to other people or not so that you can just be this humble servant to other people and you know turn the other cheek and all of that it's because God doesn't want you to have that power that rests over you that if you hold on to bitterness and you hold on to pain and you hold on to anguish and it's sitting there festering like a deep wound and you never are able to forgive then you're holding on to that thing that God wants to remove from you You're letting that power win, and God's saying, I want that power. I want to be the Lord of that in your life. Forgive because you have been forgiven, or forgive and I will also forgive. God is a God of forgiveness. And if we're honest, sometimes we have a hard time of even entering into the forgiveness of God. We talk about it, but sometimes in saying that God has forgiven us, we sometimes have a hard time for even forgiving ourselves. So I wonder, what does it look like to truly enter into the forgiveness of Christ to such an extent that you cannot help but to then extend forgiveness to others? that you bathe yourself so much in the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness of Christ on who you are, what you've done, you know, everything that you've gone through, so then you can then extend it to the world. Jesus captured all of this in a simple act, and he asked his disciples to remember in order that they would uh, engage that that very act of, of Christ for the forgiveness of themselves and for the world. So, we're gonna share in a time of of Holy Communion. We're gonna have ushers come through and and hand you a piece of bread first. And we're just gonna ask that you hold on to that piece of bread. And then Pastor Steve is going to um, administer and and give us instruction for for taking it. And then afterwards, we'll we'll take the cup as well. And those words, when Jesus um, gave that first Passover meal, the, the Last Supper, He said, do this in remembrance of me, the sacrifice that I made to remind us of that 
forgiveness. Jesus knew that he was about to be betrayed. Jesus knew that he was about to be taken advantage of. Jesus knew that he was going to submit himself to human weakness. But he still did it because through that came the power of God. My prayer for us today is that we, as we release forgiveness for people, forgiving God even for disappointments, just releasing forgiveness, we give that power up, give it to God, and in so doing, we get to experience the freedom and the peace that comes from an ultimately powerful and ultimately good God towards us. Let's pray. God, thank you for this time of of Holy Communion. Holy Spirit, make it sacred. Make it powerful. Change and transform us. Let us receive, let us take in the, the, the sacrifice of Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins so that we can live into your forgiveness each new day with each relationship and especially when we encounter our past. Lord, help us to give up that power and to give it to you so we can experience your goodness and your truth and your peace. We pray this in the strong and powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Ushers.
Lord Jesus Christ, which is given for us. Let us eat together. Would the ushers come and serve the cup, please?
sit for a second and reflection on the glory and the greatness of our God as we wait for those to receive. The blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, with which we receive forgiveness of our sins. Let us drink together. Would you stand with me for prayer? Let's pray, Lord, this morning. We have been convicted of our at times unforgiving spirit. Lord, we've seen in Joseph this battle with his past, the battle to forgive, the battle to seek revenge, to inflict hurt on those who have hurt us. And Lord, we must admit, most of us have been there at one time or another. Lord, maybe we've done it. Maybe we haven't, but we thought about it. We've dwelled on it. Lord, I pray that you would forgive us for that. Lord, help us as we surrender our past to the one who loves us the most, the one who wants the good things for our future. And we thank you, Lord, for this blood of Jesus Christ that made the forgiveness possible, that first forgave us, and Lord, allows us to forgive others in response to the love that's been lavished on us. We thank you for that. Lord, help us this week to go to forgive to be forgiving people. That, Lord, we would live a lifestyle of forgiveness, not just here and there when we choose. But, Lord, that we, in obedience to you, 70 times 7, as much as it takes, Lord, help us. And then, Lord, this morning, before we go, we want just to lift up to, to you those in our congregation who are hurting this week. For some, it's been a difficult week. And, Lord, for the Elmore family, we lift them up to you. Lord, we mourn the loss of Jessica, and we pray that you would continue to surround them 
with your love. Lord, the Mataraza family and Sheila's mother, Lord, I pray that you would just bless them. Lord, may they sense your power and your presence with them this morning. And Lord, others that may be unaware of or just not thinking of right now, Lord, I just pray that you would be with them. Lord, some that are battling cancer right now, the other diseases right now, we just lift them up to you and surround their families with your love and mercy. Lord, be with our uh, denomination as the meetings are going on down in Canton. Lord, guide and direct us. May through it all we bring honor and glory to your name. Lord, as we live out this next week in a, in a world that seems at times to have gone crazy around us, Lord, help us to, our light to shine to be examples of what you would have us to be, not only in forgiveness, but Lord, just may the words of our mouth, just Lord, bless others. May we be examples of what a Christ follower should be. And Lord, may you continue to work in our lives and our hearts this week as we go out, and as we come back next week to hear the culmination of this marvelous story. And Lord, how you've worked in Joseph's life. And Lord, how we see you working in our lives today. We'll give you praise and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Go, forgive, serve the Lord. And don't forget, ushers are at the back with the offerings to collect. We appreciate you dropping NAS in your cards in the, in the plates. You're dismissed.